Thank you, God. In God's, in God's overwhelming mercy, in His grace, in His power, in His infinite wisdom, in His holy, masculine gentleness toward us, He created and He designed sons with three things. He designed sons to want to imitate their father. He designed sons to want to surpass their father. He designed sons to want to please their father in the core of their being. Because God knew what we needed to raise sons. In John 14.9, Jesus says... Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Imitation. Colossians 1.15 said, He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory. Somebody say glory. glory. Of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. God created sons to want to imitate, to surpass, and to please their father. I have, uh, I, I have three boys. My one son, Nicholas, he turned six the day we got here. I have another son named Lucius Salvatore. Strong Irish name. It's Italian, for those of you who missed that. <laughs> and I have an 18-month-old named Phineas Levi, or Phineas Anthony. Good, good thing he's not here to hear me mess up his middle name. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> you know, one thing I love, Nicholas loves to try to imitate me. Not too long ago, he started school, and he had to get glasses for school, and he tried on like 20 different pairs of glasses, not to find the ones that, that he liked the most, but to find the ones that look closest to mine. It's intrinsic to a son to want to imitate their dad. It's intrinsic to a son to want to surpass their father. I loved what Pastor Hutchinson preached he said, and I wrote this down, he said that fathers lead in obedience so sons will surpass in willingness. Amen. What a powerful message, although he did preach it in the neutered, impotent version. I mean, it's basically a magazine. Louis, my son Lucius, he desires to surpass me in every way. In every way. 
what we wrestle very often, hey, dads, can I give you a freebie? Wrestle with your kids. Wrestle with your kids. Four, five, six, seven days a week. Wrestle with your kids. We are teaching them how to overcome. We are teaching them that when they face obstacles, that there is a way out. Louis invented this uh, wrestling move called the smash. What he does, I... Usually it's, it's, you know, all three at one time, and I'll be pulling Nicholas into guard, and Louie will go on top of the couch and jump off butt first onto my face. <laughs> and he says, smash! <laughs> my nose wasn't always this big. He always desires to surpass in my little fin. He has this desire just to, to be with me, to please me. You can see his, his little smile. He tries to brighten my day because this is how God designed sons. I want to tell you something. This conference, as we've been preaching about sons and fathers, has been hard for me. See, I, I gave my life to Christ when I was a, a really a senior in high school. And after I gave my life to the Lord, I had this desire. I, I want a father to lead me. I wanted my biological father to be my spiritual father so bad. See, I grew up in a home where my dad, he was an alcoholic, and then he stopped drinking and he became a rageaholic. And then he stopped raging and he became a workaholic. But he had this, this, this semi-relationship with, with the Jesus he thought people wanted him to have a relationship with. And I desperately wanted my dad to be my spiritual father. And as he was growing in the Lord, I remember one day when I was 20 years old, I said, Hey, Dad, can we, can we do something special? I want to do something spiritual together. Can we do something together? Please, Dad, please. And he said, yes, son, we can. And my heart began to jump inside of me. And, and I was at a, a stage in my life where I was going to Moody Bible Institute. I was getting ready to marry my beautiful wife, Danielle. And, and I said, Dad, w- would you fast with me for 10 days? And, and would you pray with me about this? He said, son, yes, I will. I am with you, heart and soul. We have this conversation. I, I went away to do some ministry uh, things. We prayed in the morning. We got up. We are ready. We are fully charged. Just getting ready to take on the devil. I have my dad who's standing in my corner. I remember I drove to his house that night so we could pray together. And as I walked in the front door, I saw him sitting on the couch eating leftovers. I just looked at him. He said, sorry, son, it was just too hard. I've never felt heartbreak like that. So I walked out of the house, I slammed the door. I got in my 1999 Chevy Blazer, 4.3 Vortec, 
put my hands on the steering wheel and I remember the enemy shooting me with a dart as though it was an audible voice. And he said, you aren't worthy to have a spiritual father. See, in that moment, I chose sin. This is why. That dart was fired at me. And see, the word of God tells me that I'm to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That was the moment where I should have ripped it out of my chest and thrown it to the ground and went to my heavenly father. But I didn't. That lie went from my mind to my heart. And then it began to permeate my soul. So I told myself, I'm never going to be hurt like this again. And I put up walls. Whenever someone who was older than me had something to offer me would come into my life, I treated them as though they did not. I put up walls because I was hurt. But on the inside, I was crying out. I was silently crying, God, please let somebody adopt me. Somebody. So what I did is I I turned to the only two things I knew. I'm a young man in ministry, and so I, I picked two things. Because because I I want to earn an adoption. I, I want someone to step in. I want to be led. But I was hurt. So I chose, number one, to hide my sin. And number two, to outperform everybody around me. Is that something that you've chosen here today? Out of fear, you've chosen to hide your sin And listen, I'm not talking about the the big sins that we just uh, uh, list out, always the sexual immorality. I'm talking about jealousy. I'm, I'm talking about rage. Things that I would never let anyone see, but my wife would catch the brunt of. Something I needed to be fathered through. I remember there was a guy who, who worked in the ministry and, and, I, and I started to open up myself to them. We joined a, a home group together, and, and he was an older man, very successful, very powerful. And it was just feeding this thing in me that I, I had to be adopted by somebody. I was growing this great ministry. I was speaking in front of thousands of people. I had to perform. I had to perform. I had to perform. And if I performed well enough, maybe he would adopt me. As our relationship grew, he started saying things like, you know, I see you like a son. I see you like a son. And it started to bring healing into my heart. And see, this was a time when I encountered the Lord in a way I have never encountered him before. I started to to discover that the Holy Spirit wanted to be personally involved in my life. That he wanted to not only indwell me, but manifest through me. That Jesus Christ wanted to baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
this guy wasn't about that. <laughs> and so many of you know the story. I, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. I knew I had to leave my ministry. The single hardest conversation I ever had was going into his office. I remember sitting down. Thinking of Luke 14, 26, that it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> and I sat down across from him, and I, I tried explaining what was going on, what, what the Holy Spirit just did in my life, that I have to live completely abandoned. And he said, Nick, you are a son to me. And you betrayed me. And that was the last thing he said. See, now not only did I have this lie that I wasn't worthy to have a spiritual father, but as I was walking out of his office, I got shot with this lie that I wasn't even worthy to be a spiritual son. I want to tell you, the Lord has brought so much healing. He has brought healing in my life. To be perfectly honest with you, some of that healing has come this week. It has come this weekend. And listen, it wasn't because I was in a sozo session. It wasn't because I went to 15 years of counseling. It was because last night, I'm telling you, last night, I'll be real open, at 3 in the morning, I was repenting for receiving those lies. For not taking them captive. For letting them dwell in my heart and create walls around the people I love the most. You know, I was, I was so uh, struck with the opening message about Barnabas. About Barnabas. See, maybe you're here and one of the lies that you continue to go back to is how can I be a spiritual father when I haven't been spiritually fathered? Although I did not have a good spiritual father, I had amazing Barnabases. I want to bring uh, one uh, clarification for, for the message about Barnabas. I believe uh, one of the pastors said that Nick Slaughter was my Barnabas. That's not true. Nick is my Barnabas. Going through the pain, the rejection. God brought men into my life like Michael Hutchinson, a Barnabas to me. Him and Jen laid down their lives for us. They submitted themselves on the altar of God for my family, and it changed my life. 
changed my life. These men have taught me a message, and the message that we're going to talk about today is this. This is Ihad to Peru, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Part 2. Here's the message. Sons, continue the Father's work. That's what we're going to talk about just for a little bit. That sons are raised up so that they can continue the Father's work. And we're going to focus on, on two aspects of that, just two, tonight. The work is seeking the glory. We're going to talk about what this means. And establishing the throne. Everybody say, seek the glory. glory. Everybody say, establish the throne. throne. Let's get into God's word together. You know, we're going to pick up. I want you to uh, go to Zechariah chapter 1. And I want to set the tone for you as you're getting there. Is that all right? Come on. When you get there, say glory. Glory. Hallelujah. I don't know if there's anyone who experienced the glory of God quite like Moses. He saw it in the cloud. He saw it in the fire. He saw it on the mountain. He saw it at the tent of meeting. He saw it in the tabernacle. It shone through his very face. The glory of God that dwelt in Solomon's temple. And then something tragic happens in the Word. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of God departs. We read about, you know, the passages in Ezekiel 34. There's these shepherds, and it says that they were slaughtering the fat sheep, and they were clothing themselves with the wool of the sheep. They were literally harvesting the strengths of the people and then leaving their corpse on the side of the road. That these prophets were speaking out of their own hearts, their own desires, and God said, I had enough. All these things were manifestations of idolatry, which is adultery. We're going to see this in a couple ways. I want you to think about this, though. It's when we live in our own will. It's when we become our own advocate. It's when we try to build up our own name. And it's when we try to live for our own glory. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. Glory? Glory. That was terrible. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 1, glory? Glory. All right, let's pick them in verse 2. It says that the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers. See, sometimes, and I've been guilty of this. I want you to know, first and foremost, we say things like, no, don't say to yourself you don't want to be like your dad because then it holds you as a prisoner to your dad. I've, I've taught that. I've said that. Right here, God clearly says, don't be like your father. I take more comfort in what the word of God says. I'm not going to be like my father. I'm going to be like my father. 
to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. I I want to tell you what's going on right now. The, The remnant has come back in, and there's something that's been highlighted. The glory of God left the temple. There was literally an entire generation of kids who grew up not knowing the glory of God. There was an entire generation that grew up living in exile because of their fathers caring about their own will, their own advocacy, their own name, and their own glory. Fathers, mothers, have you led your children into an exile where they do not know the glory of God because you're fighting for yourself you want your own glory in Ezra chapter 3 verse 10 it says and when the builders laid the foundation everyone's coming back and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the levites the son of asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel and they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud, why? Because the glory in the first temple was better. The old wine was better. They began to weep. They began to cry. And the glory of God never returns to this temple. There was a prophet who was raised up. His name's Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, why don't you turn there? Haggai 2, verse 3. It says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong. Did you hear that word come out today? This is what we're talking about. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. He doesn't say, sit back, because I'm here. He says, work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yes, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will declare, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So 
Sons carry on the work of the Father. The glory leaving was one part. The glory can leave and you can still continue on with business as usual for the most part. That's how you can have churches that seem to be alive, but then as you look a little closer, where's the glory? We see a king on the throne inside this house, but where's the glory? When the glory departs, that's just the first step. I want to tell you about a covenant that was made from a father to a son. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 12, 11. made a life decision a few months ago to avoid the civil war between the ESV and the NIV. And I now hold a complete Jewish study Bible. And the freedom that I found is tremendous. The complete gibberish Bible. (laughs) Get him, Moab. Call down fire. Judah. <laughs> you see, in Second uh, Samuel twelve, Second oh. Samuel, right? Come on. Oh man. Second Samuel 7. That's a human error. Start with me at moreover. So I'm going to read this to you. Listen to what I'm saying, even more than following along in your own Bible. And, and by the way, when you get to these verses, say throne. All right. We're going to talk about the throne. Second Samuel 7. Starting in verse 11, where it says, Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. Let's stop for just a second. So what's happened? What's the backstory here? We have David whose heart is overflowing with gratitude for all that God has done for him. All the good things that God has done. And so this son, David, cries out to his father that he wants to do something for him. I want to do something for the Lord. I want to do something for the Lord. How many of you have ever had it in your heart to do something for the Lord? So he cries out with this good, godly desire. I want to do something for you, Lord. But then the word from the Lord comes and it says, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors... I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood, and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him, and he will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I will punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. 
Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Shaul, whom I removed from before you. Thus your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. Can you imagine? Most of the time when you say, I want to do something for you, Lord, something corny comes out. But can you imagine if you said something that actually moved the heart of God to where he responded back to you and says, I see that you want to do that for me. I want to do something for you. And the Lord responded back and said, I'm going to establish your dynasty forever. Now, there's something called conditional and something called unconditional. When the Lord steps in and says, I'm going to do this regardless of your failures. If you fail, I will discipline you because that's what I do with my sons. But I'm going to do this for you and this rests on me. There's something different about that. And this is the promise that the son receives from the father. And that David, Judah, are your boys with you at all? Nope. Eric and Judah, would you all come up here real quick, please? Turn around and face everybody. So this is a father. This is a son. He is also a who is also a do you see a son and a father? Thank you, gentlemen. You look amazing. (laughs) David is a son, but he is also a father. You have the father, God who makes a promise to the son, David. And there is a partnership that forms on this project of building a house. But the son, who is also a father, must partner with his son. What you see in verse 26 was something that really caught my attention. Do any of you have kids who ask for something when you give it to them? They say, and and also how about this, just to see how much they can get? I like to say that my 10-year-old son knows what an assumptive close is. Does anybody know what that is? An assumptive close. Dad, when we go to the theme park later today, what kind of candy will I get? I never said we were going to a theme park. You're already talking about the candy. But look at what David says in chapter 7, verse 26. Talk about an assumptive close. Look at what he says. He starts off with saying, who am I that you would do this for me? Who am I that you would give this promise to me and my descendants? But then he says in verse 26, may your name be magnified forever so that it will be said, Adonai Svaot is God over Israel and the dynasty of your servant David will be set up in your presence. Assumptive close. He said he would build the dynasty. And David says, yes, yes, in your presence. In your presence. And so here the promise of God is given to David. I'm going to build your dynasty up forever. Can you imagine the weight that a promise like that would carry? And then over the course of 400 years... One after another, you watch 22 kings come from David. 21 from David, 22 in all. 
and you see each of these kings come from his line and you say, God is real. Look, the promises that he makes to his people are real. Look at this father-son partnership between the father and his son David and then between David the father and his son Solomon. Sure, there's some misfits along the way, but look, God keeps his promises and the sons work with the father to continue the work. Do you see how the sons partner with the fathers throughout the generations? 400 years this covenant stood. But then something happened. Turn with me to Psalm 89. One of the benefits to having a complete Jewish study Bible is you get to learn the order of the books all over again. The right order. Keep them coming, Ohad. I'm sure you got a pocket full of them. Look in verse 3 and 4. You see, this is what's called a post-exilic psalm. And the man that's writing it, Ezra, I'm sorry, Etan, the Ezraki, the Ezraite. He says in verse three, you said, I made a covenant with the one I chose. I swore to my servant, David, I will establish your dynasty forever. Build up your throne through all generations. Look at verse 19. It says there was a time when you spoke in a vision. You declared to your loyal prophets. I have given help to a warrior. I have raised up someone chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, and anointed him with my holy oil. My hand will always be with him, and my arm will give him strength. He's speaking about the promise that we just read about. The covenant that was given. But you see, the context of this is that this covenant seems to have been broken. Because here they are, and there's no throne with a descendant of David on it. Where is the promise that you made, Lord? That throne is supposed to be occupied by a descendant of David. You made a covenant, Lord, and it was unconditional. You even said that you would discipline us if we walked away or if we did wrong. But you said you would never take away this covenant. Can you imagine the effect that that would have on you? How many of you have been waiting on a promise from God for a long time? A promise that you know God gave you. Buddy, how long was that promise? 23 years? 24 years? 23 years. Do you know that they went almost 600 years looking like that promise had been abandoned? Can you imagine the kind of infighting and extra rules and regulations that they might have put in place saying, I know why it hasn't happened yet. It's because of you. It's because of you and what you're doing. Here's what we're going to do in response to that. We're going to institute this and we're going to start doing this so that that never happens again. And then hopefully it'll come back. And they go to all the trouble of building everything back and getting it back in order. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And the glory doesn't come. We've set it all up. We've done all. We've made the preparations. We've done the work. We thought we got everything back in order and we're crying out and and. There's no glory and there's no descendant of David on the throne. The glory has departed. And now the throne. The throne. 
It's not established anymore. It's been broken. The covenant's been broken. This is what it looks like to the people. Look in verse 26. Sorry, look at 33. Listen to the way that he's speaking. He says, I will punish their disobedience with the rod and their guilt with the lashes, but I won't withdraw my grace from him. This is coming from a man standing there living in this. And he's repeating it back to him. By the way, this is one of the wisest men in the land. He says, I will not profane my covenant or change what my lips have spoken. I have sworn my holiness by my holiness once and for all. I will not lie to David. It means something when the Lord says, I will not lie to you. I will do what I've said. His dynasty will last forever. His throne like the sun before me. It will be established forever like the moon, which remains a faithful witness in the sky. And now listen to what it feels like to have the promise of God seemingly broken in your life. He says, but you spurned your anointed one, rejected and vented your rage on him. You renounced the covenant with your servant. Far be it from God, the one who created everything to renounce his covenant that he made. But this is what he's speaking to him. He says, you defiled his crown in the dust. You broke through all his defenses and left his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He is an object of scorn to his neighbors. You raised up the right hand of his foes and made all his enemies rejoice. You drive back his drawn sword and failed to support him in battle. You brought an end to his splendor and hurled his throne to the ground. You cut short the days of his youth and covered him with shame. Can you imagine feeling that ridicule, feeling that shame? Because you claim to be a people of God, but where is your God now? You see, what had happened is over the course of many generations, the sons had abandoned the work of the father. The sons had forgotten the father-son relationship that caused this promise and covenant to come about. The sons had gone off and started doing their own things. The sons were building their own kingdoms and making a name for themselves, giving themselves over to pleasures and comfort. Just this past Wednesday night, they had a prayer service at Life Changing Ministries. And the only thing that I could, that I felt an opening to pray for was to repent of my own sin of growing too comfortable. You see, exactly what Pastor Eric was talking about in the beginning of the ministry feeling I'm so important. I'm so important. Look how much value I have. You don't know that when it's happening to you. That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, I have something that they're missing. That's what you're thinking. You heard the saying, game, recognize game. When you're, when you're doing something and you're starting to see some results and you think, I've got something new. There's something new here. And you begin to go your own way and you abandon the work of the father. You start to think that they don't got it. They don't understand. And there's a little rebellious phase that starts working in your heart, even in ministry. Praise God, because there's some beautiful things that are happening. But this begins to work on you like it did in me. And what I recognized is by becoming so myopic and focusing on what was happening right here in Crystal Lake. Focusing on the people here, and rightly so, putting all my attention right there and making sure that it survived, making sure that everybody was doing well, everybody's taken care of. We're having a good time. We're obeying the commands of the Lord. We're staying holy. And I did that for year after year after year. 
and I realized that something happened I didn't expect. My heart had grown cold to everything that was happening outside of right there. And I wasn't focused on the work of the Father. You see, the Lord woke me up to something. I'm going to tell you something. Pastor Eric didn't know I was going to say this, but y'all don't have to worry about me and Pastor Eric. A few years ago, we're standing, we're standing in Mexico. And I was getting, what's the proper way to say this? My feelings hurt. You see, we had come into town and I had brought a few guys and we were on a mission trip. And normally when you come into town, the routine is you ask the person to speak that Wednesday night. So this entire mission trip, I'm wondering why he didn't ask me to speak on Wednesday night. Don't you know what I have? And we're standing in front of a truck, and there's a few guys in it. And I ask him, why didn't you ask me to preach on Wednesday night? We're in a parking lot. Supposed to be there focusing on others. Why didn't you ask me to preach on Wednesday night? And he looks me dead in the eyes and he said, because you're not a good preacher. Let a righteous man strike me. Come on. In the beginning, you don't know that you're abandoning the work of the Father. You think that you're just doing something good. I mean, I got to establish, I got the corner on them. I see something that they don't see. That's what you think. And you're wrong. But what do you do if generation after generation after generation has that thought? I got something that they don't have. I got something that they don't have. And then you get a little bit down the road and you recognize this is not going to work out. So you spend the rest of your days just consuming everything, saying, well, they'll have to fend for themselves just like I did. This is what had happened. And this righteous man is crying out to God. Don't you remember what you said? Don't you remember what you told us? Look at what's happening around us. You've abandoned your covenant. You've spurned your anointed one and his crown is in the dust. It looked like the covenant had been broken and the throne had departed. So we're at this point because of someone's sin, because of parents' sin, because of a father's sin. There's a generation who not only did not see the glory of God, but they did not see the established throne that was promised. Kids being raised in this. Can you imagine raising your kids where they do not know the glory of God or the kingdom of God as a direct result of your sin? That's where we're at. We have a good God. God wants again Desire to pour out his mercy on his people. Let's go to John chapter 1. 
Say glory when you get to verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. I'm going to read it in the CJB. I hope Moses' imagery begins to come in your mind right now. The Word became a human being and lived with us, and we saw His Shekinah, the Shekinah of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The glory did not come back to that temple, but it came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. God sent His Son. He said, I will establish my glory once again, and I'm going to use my very Son. His glory was coming back. The prophecy of Haggai was being fulfilled. Hey, did you know we're going to see even another fulfillment of this in the millennial reign? That the glory, the throne is going to be established and we're going to see it forever and ever and ever. The glory came back. See, this is why everyone was so upset in John chapter 2 when Jesus was cleansing the temple. They ask him, they have the audacity to ask him, what sign do you show us? Why are you doing all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Because he was containing the very glory of the Father. He is the exact imprint. If we see him, we see the Father. And he came to earth. He was standing among them. What a beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace that once was contained in a temple, now freely roamed among the people. We have a gracious God. Go to John chapter 5. See, we can know the reality of this. We can sense the reality of this. But did you know that we can still miss it? We're going to pick up John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 30. We've talked about this verse a few times. I want you to see this. What we're going to read right here in John chapter 5 is literally a commentary on how the forefathers also missed it. Verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Fathers, we lead our kids into exile when we live for our own will and not the will of our heavenly Father. We are exiling our kids in a way that they will not know the manifest glory, the manifest Shekinah glory of God when we live for ourselves. Do you live for yourself? You've been making decision after decision after decision so that it, it suits your own will. 
You don't submit it to your spiritual father. You don't submit it to your heavenly father. You do as the prophets did before you, and you do what pleases your own heart. Jesus didn't do that. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is saying, I'm not my own advocate. Do you try to be your own advocate? Do you always have the need to defend yourself, to try to prove yourself, to to, to testify about yourself, your goodness? You get offended all the time and you always have to come with a rebuttal. Your spiritual father, your spiritual mother it begins to rebuke you and you begin to come up with a thousand reasons why you're justified. You are your own advocate. See, Jesus not only did his father's will, but he received the father's advocacy. Look at, look at this. Jesus doesn't even have to advocate for himself. Look at what the Father gives him. Verse 32, he says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works. Everyone say the Father's works. works. Say not my works. works. The Father's works. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. How about that for a rebuke? See, the Father advocates Jesus. He gives him John. He advocates him himself. It's literally this picture of, of earth. John the baptizer, the immerser, testifying to who Jesus is in heaven, confirming that testimony through the Father. And we think we have to advocate for ourselves. Not only that, the works that the Father gave him to do, not what he invented. It's not the new ministry scheme, the ministry plan, the the idea to do something new and creative. It's the old wine. The wine from the beginning. Those works testify about Jesus. The scriptures, look at what it says in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Do you continue to fight for yourself, brother? Do you continue to try to promote yourself, sister? 
that you try to find your value in how people perceive you. The next thing we're going to see that happens is that they care about their own name. It says yet in verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus, you're hurting my feelings. You can pick one. Do you want the glory of man or the love of the Father? He says in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name. This isn't about my name. It's about the Father's name. And did you know that we see in Philippians 2 that in God and His goodness and His desire that it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that as Jesus continues to glorify the Father, the Father raises Him up and men and women start to glorify Him. His mind was set on the works of the Father because sons, sons continue the work of the Father. He says in verse 44, He says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, listen, he's not talking about some charismatic experience. He's talking about himself. He is the very glory of God. And he's saying, you don't seek me because you are continually obsessed with receiving glory from men. You can pick one. At the end, as we think about glory and Moses, it says in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you want to see the glory of God in your life? The scriptures tell us. Do you want to see? This is what I mean. Do you want to see Jesus manifest his presence in your life? Not just at a meeting, but every day when you wake up. Every time you pray over your sons and daughters. Every meeting you have, you want to see the glory of God manifest. I'm going to give you two things the scriptures give us that keep us from that. The first thing is unbelief. John eleven forty says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Where in your life do you have to repent and cut off unbelief? The second thing we see is fear. I'm going to read this to you in John 12, 41 through 43. Think to yourself right now, is this me? Think to yourself, is this me? Isaiah said these things. Is this you? Is this me? Because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You can pick one. 
You see, these are, these are two messages about the glory and about the throne, but you can't separate them. The glory and the throne are linked. And I want to tell you that because Jesus came, he set the example. He is the model. And if Jesus comes onto the scene, if the glory comes back onto the scene, if he's here now, what we've waited for for so long is here now. What does it look like for the son to continue the work of the father? Go to Matthew 1, 1. see, there's an aspect of Jesus's life and death that I think we miss. And when we're talking about the work, the son continuing the work, what I felt from Pastor Eric, not just during this worship worship session, but throughout the conference and what I know to be true of him is he knows that people can get excited. He knows that people can get excited. But what we have a lack of is not getting excited, which should still stay. What we have a lack of is doing actual work outside this place. Because inside we can be warriors, mighty, powerful. And we walk out and we look the other way as soon as anybody passes by that we don't know. (laughs) Yes. See, there's an emphasis put on the lineage of David. Look at Matthew 1.1. Don't you say that this is important if this is how the Brit Hadashah begins? This is the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, Avraham. We see that Jesus, the first thing that he's called besides the Messiah is a son of David, a son of David. Why? To you and me, this doesn't matter as much. Not as it did to them. Because when you've been given a promise from God that you are waiting for, it means more to you than someone that you're telling. I'm waiting on this promise with the Lord. I'll pray with you. We'll see. But for me, I am in agony over it until it comes to pass. But all of a sudden, when you see Jesus, the son of David, son of David, what does this mean? Go and look at Luke 1. The glory and the throne are linked, and the Son continues the work. We're going to talk about actual, practical work that the Son did to continue the work of the Father. So look at this, an angel comes to Miriam, or Mary. And in verse 28, it says, Approaching her, the angel said, Shalom, favored lady. Adonai is with you. She was deeply troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, there's something that you might have missed. Shalom, favored lady. But then he says, Adonai is with you. Presence, glory, what's happening? Adonai is with you, glory, 
wait a second, a son of David? Says, look, you will become pregnant. Says, don't be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. Look, you will become pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you are to name him Yeshua. He will be great. He will be called son of Yon. Adonai, God, will give him the throne of his forefather David. It has been 600 years. Don't tease me by telling me he's going to get the throne of David. We've been waiting on that a long time. We've been waiting on the sons to pick up where the fathers left off. But all we've gotten is more of the same thing because the sons won't continue the work of their fathers. And by default, they haven't continued the work of the father. How can this be? He will rule the house of Jacob forever. Just in case there was any question about what I'm referring to. And there will be no end to his kingdom. King David's crown alone was 75 pounds. It was a talent of gold set with gems. His throne and scepter were glorious. What would this king's crown look like? David had a crown made of a talent of gold. Sat on a throne with a scepter, a royal robe, recognized as king. And you say the son of David is coming back? And the throne of David will be reestablished. This is going to be glorious. What kind of glorious ceremony will be held to crown him king? You see, the son came to finish the work of the fathers. When you think about the work that you've attached yourself to. The way of life, because we say that discipleship is lifestyle impartation. It's not a program. It's not even a curriculum. It can only be imparted by absorbing someone's lifestyle and that becoming your own. Turn to Matthew 27. Let's read about the coronation ceremony of the king. We get excited when we think about doing the work of our father. Eric has been a better father to me than I ever could have imagined. And as I became more secure in who I was, because the answer when he says to me, you're not a good preacher. If he comes back to me, and says, I didn't mean to say that. No, no, it was said. Now, let me just sit in it. And I did. And what I came away with was not, no, I am a good preacher. These people said so. (laughs) What I came away with was, good or not, this is what I am. This is what I do. And that settled me down to be able to love him rightly. 
and to be a son rightly. Because when we talk about don't care a damn about this world, that even means the approval of man, those closest to you. Now, at the end of the day, I care very much what he thinks. Very much. More than almost anyone in the world. But I had to let that be settled in me. That I wasn't doing this for the results, but I was committed to the cause. That had to be what fueled me. When you think about Jesus being committed to the cause as a son continuing the work of the father, you will be tested. Are you committed to the results or are you committed to the cause? Come on, far back. You committed to the results or you committed to the cause? Come on, buddy. Come on, Brent. Cause all day long. Look at Matthew 27. Let's see what it looks like as the son continues the work of the fathers, as the people who have waited so long for this covenant to be fulfilled. They've been waiting for some son to come along, a descendant of David who would renew this covenant, sit on the throne, be crowned king. Verse 27, the governor's soldiers took Yeshua into the headquarters building and the whole battalion gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and put on him a scarlet robe. There's his robe. Wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Here's the crown of the king. And put a stick in his right hand. Here's his scepter. Then they kneeled down in front of him. Here's the worship of the king. They kneeled down in front of him and made fun of him. Hail to the king of the Jews. They spit on him and used the stick to, the stick to beat him about the head. When they had finished ridiculing him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on and led him away to be nailed to the execution stake. You think they had any of this in mind? When the king would finally come to sit on the throne of David again. That this is what it would look like. You know that Caiaphas prophesied without knowing what he was doing. A wicked man rightly prophesied when he said, it'd be better that one man die than a whole nation. The obedience of the nations will be his. As they were leaving, they met a man from Cyrene named Shimon, and they forced him to carry Yeshua's execution stake. When they arrived at a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine. Here was the wine presented to the king. They gave him wine mixed with bitter gall to drink. But after tasting it, he would not drink it. After they had nailed him to the stake, they divided his clothes among them by throwing dice. Then they sat down to keep watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written notice stating the charge against him. This is Yeshua, the king of the Jews, the son of David, of whom it was said that he would assume the throne of David. And the covenant would be renewed. But this is what it looked like on this side of eternity for the son to continue the work of the father. When you think about the praise and the glory that you will get as you set out to do what God has called you to, what do you picture in your head? You know, we have romanticized martyrdom. I read as a man wrote about martyrdom and he said, what do you think martyrdom would be? Do you think it will be this glorious moment where they recognize how great you truly are? He said, no, what was it for Christ? 
He hung there not with a loincloth on, but naked. Naked. Spit upon and beaten. This was the king. And he was simply doing the work of his father. This is what the people needed. But how did the world treat him? What do you expect as you set out to do the work of the father? What kind of praise do you expect to get? What kind of support or encouragement do you expect to get at the right moment when you feel that everything is falling apart? You think that even righteous men don't feel alone in the midst of the battle? We can be so right. There are more righteous men in this room than any room I've ever been in. And yet, each one of you will feel alone at just the right time when it seems like everything is falling apart. And you will wonder, where is anyone else? Now, if you look, the encouragement is there. But I want to tell you that this is what Jesus experienced. And if he experienced it and he is our model, what do you expect? I want to tell you that this son was willing to do whatever it took to continue the work of his father. And he is not our replacement. He is our model. In this aspect, you are expected to finish the work that your father gives you. Why? Because the work of your fathers is the work of your father. When he says, I will build this house and he's the one living in it. And he determines who can come in and go out. Whose house is it really? And the glory came. And he was seated on the throne, though it looked like an execution, though it looked like the enemy had won. He was actually crushing his head. The son was doing the work of the father. Even though he was bloodied, rejected. He wore a crown of thorns with the right sign. Coming from the wrong motives. And he was rejected by his own. They didn't recognize him. But they will. Because he did finish the work that his father gave him. And what does he then do? He confers upon us a kingdom. Do you know when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Says teaching them to obey my commands. This means he is Lord. So he says, go and enthrone me upon the hearts of men as their Lord. Go and teach them to obey me as Lord. Is that offensive? Go and teach them to obey me as Lord. And what? I will be with you. The glory, the throne and the glory. We go to teach people to enthrone Jesus on their hearts. And he is with us wherever we go. He has conferred upon us a kingdom. And so when you see that the glory has returned. And the son has done the work of the father. It's time for him to be seated on the throne of the hearts of men. What you go to do as a son. As you continue the work of your father. You will be rejected. The list of people who hate me and want nothing to do with me and I'm the reason that their whole life is terrible is growing longer and longer. And it's not that you get numb to it. You begin to recognize, oh, this is what happens to anybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. He told me about this. And then when I look at his life, I actually see that this is what he experienced. He's not my replacement. He is my model in this aspect. 
when you think about continuing the work of the Father, it is bloody, it is messy, it will cost you everything, and this world may not recognize it at all. But you do the work of the Father because it's the work of the Father. True sons, continue the work of the Father. I'm going to have the worship team come up. I want to ask you, will you continue the work of your father? There's two things we want to do. I want to make two very specific calls to repentance right now. If as I was reading John chapter 5, you recognize that you have been living for your own will. That you have been your own advocate. That you have been living to build up your own name. You have desired and and you are addicted to the glory that comes from man rather than the glory that comes from God. If you live this way, you are leading your kids into an exile where they will not experience the glory of God. Fathers, if in this moment right now you know that's you, I want you to just stand up where you're at right now. People around, I just want you to pray over these men. Men who are standing, begin to confess to the Lord. Begin to confess. Saints, begin to intercede. Begin to confess like a man of God. Because the word says that when these fathers repented, the kids were able to return. call I want to give is if you found yourself like me that if you have believed the lies and I want you to hear me this isn't a call to display your victimness of fatherlessness if you realize that you have given into the lie that you are an orphan because you have not taken every thought captive and you want to repent of that and you want to submit yourself to a Barnabas. You say, I'm going to repent of that mindset and submit myself 
to an earthly father. You have been rejecting fatherhood because of fear, because of unbelief. This is for you. I want you to just come forward right now.